This is a recording from the University of Leicester. Well, it's uh, very good at the beginning of the academic year to see such a high-profile student audience um, for a high-profile, the first in a high-profile series of lectures. The Scarman Lectures are a series of annual events that provide an opportunity for some of the most high-profile and acclaimed commentators in the world of criminology, policing and criminal justice to share their thoughts with members of the university and indeed to, uh, to discuss uh, a series of topics that are of key concern. It's a great pleasure for the very first uh, lecture in the Scarman series this academic year to welcome to the university Keir Starmer, who is currently the head of the Crown Prosecution Service and who has a long and distinguished record. He was called to the bar in 1987 and appointed a QC in 2002. He has practised from Doherty Street Chambers since its inception in 1990 and was appointed head of chambers in 2007. Its main areas of practice are human rights, international law, judicial review and criminal law. He has conducted cases at the highest level and all over the world in those particular fields. He is the author of several leading texts on human rights and criminal law. He was named QC of the Year in the field of human rights and public law in the year 2007, and in 2005, he won the Bar Council's Sydney Allen Goldsmith Award for his outstanding contribution to pro bono work in challenging the death penalty throughout the Caribbean and also in Uganda, Kenya, and Malawi. From 2003 to 2008, he was the Human Rights Advisor to the Policing Board in Northern Ireland. He was appointed as Director of Public Prosecutions and Head of the Crown Prosecution Service in 2008. He's due to step down from this post at the end of this month. He is, therefore, eminently well qualified to deliver this evening's Scarman Lecture entitled A Prosecution Service for the 21st Century. Keir Starmer. Uh, thank you very much and uh, good evening. A prosecution service uh, for the 21st century. At 7.29pm on Monday the 1st of October last year, April Jones was reported missing by her mother. April, aged five, had been outside the family house in Poes in Wales, playing on her bike with friends. A police search started straight away, uh, and within half an hour, 200 local volunteers had joined the search. Uh, news spread fast on Twitter and Facebook, something I will return to later. By 10pm that evening... The story of a missing girl was running on BBC Wales uh, and Radio Wales. And at 10.30pm, the police issued a statement uh, saying that they were, quotes, increasingly concerned for April 
indicating that she had been seen getting into a light-coloured van which drove off. Night fell. Uh, the next morning, Tuesday the 2nd of October, uh, one year ago today, the police gave further details of the known circumstances of April's disappearance. Volunteers by this stage had arrived from all over Wales uh, and from the north of England to join the search. A major incident room was set up at Aberystwyth and the police began the delicate and time-consuming task of taking an account of of events from April's friends many of whom were very young children. Then at 3.32pm that day, one year and one hour ago, a 46-year-old man was arrested as he walked along the A487 just north of Dovey Bridge. Uh, He was Mark Bridger, and he owned a vehicle similar to the one described by witnesses who saw April's abduction. By 9.30pm that evening, April's family released a statement through the police. It was short and heavy with grief. Quotes, we are devastated and our lives have stopped. Please, please, if you have our little girl, let her come home to us. That night, and over the next two days, Wednesday the 3rd of October and Thursday the 4th of October, remember those dates, I'll come back to them, extensive searches continued for April. The police described the operation as unprecedented in terms of scale and terrain. Neighbouring police forces, including 100 specialist police searchers, joined in the search as did 100 mountain rescue volunteers, 20 dog handlers, coast guards, and two RNLI lifecraft. Tragically, despite one of the biggest search operations in the history of policing, April's body has never been found. Shortly after Mark Bridger was arrested, walking up the A487, and taken into custody, the Crown Prosecution Service was contacted. The head of the Swansea Crown Court unit downed tools and began working with the police at the centre of their operation. His job was to assess the evidence as it came in with a view to deciding whether Mark Bridger could be charged with a criminal offence, and if so what charges should be brought. In such circumstances, the police and prosecutors are often working against the clock. There are legal limits, rightly so, on the length of time that the police can detain an arrested person. And if a suspect is not charged at the end of the permitted period, he or she must be released. The CPS head of the Crown Court unit was advised 
that two spots of blood had been found on Mark Bridges' clothing, but they could not be attributed. Blood had also been found in the bathroom of his house, but the police analysis of that blood was not yet ready. Uh, the police and prosecutors needed more time. And on Thursday morning, the 4th of October, they persuaded the magistrates in Aberystwyth to grant them more time to question Mark Bridger. But as the clock ran down, there was still not enough evidence. And a further extension of time was needed. At 3.30pm on Friday, the 5th of October... Police and prosecutors applied for and got a final extension of time. The magistrates gave them 24 hours. If Mark Bridger was not charged by Saturday afternoon, uh, he would have to be released. Uh, then, a development. Blood identified as coming from April Jones, was found under the living room carpet in Mark Bridger's home. A breakthrough for the police and prosecutors, but devastating news for April's parents, who, with the extensive search still ongoing, were hoping against hope that April would be found alive. The decision was made to charge Mark Bridger with murder, and the family, uh, police family liaison officers began the very difficult task of informing April's parents of the charge before a public announcement was made. All concerned knew that the charging decision, murder, would send a chill down the spines of all those still out on the mountains searching. The announcement was made by the police and the CPS at 4pm on Saturday the 6th of October, the decision having been made just within the final 24 hours agreed by the magistrates for the detention of Mark Bridger. Here is what Ewan Jenkins, the CPS District Crown Prosecutor, said at 4 o'clock that afternoon, and I quote, The Crown Prosecution Service has been in close contact with David Powell's police as their extensive investigation into April's disappearance has developed. In particular, we have been offering advice and guidance to the police since the suspect, Mark Bridger, was arrested last Tuesday. My role is to examine the evidence that is currently available and advise the police in respect of charges. I now have to advise that, having carried out a detailed review of the evidence gathered so far by the police, my conclusion is that there's sufficient evidence to charge Mark Bridger with the murder of April Jones and that it's in the public interest to do so. I have also concluded that there is sufficient evidence and that it is in the public interest to charge the defendant with attempting to pervert the course of justice and child abduction. Accordingly, I've authorised the police to charge him with these offences and he will appear before Aberystwyth Magistrates Court on Monday morning. I realise that this is an incredibly difficult time for April's family, friends and the community. My thoughts are with them and indeed with all those affected by this week's events. The huge public and media interest in this case is understandable 
I would like to stress that whilst Mark Bridger stands accused of serious criminal charges, he retains the right to a fair trial. I would therefore ask that nothing is placed in the public domain that may undermine the criminal justice process. And that ended the statement that was made by Ewan Jenkins that afternoon. Meanwhile, many miles away, a young man called Matthew Woods was being arrested for his own safety by police in Lancashire. Matthew Woods, aged 20, had been posting grossly offensive messages on Facebook on the 3rd and 4th of October. Remember those dates? The 48 hours after the anguished plea from April's family for news about their little girl and the time when the search was at its most intense but before the charging decision. The messages posted by Matthew Woods were about April Jones and Madeleine McCann. They hit a very raw nerve. So gross were the messages uh, that a crowd of about 50 people in Lancashire had made their way to Matthew Woods' home uh, to give him the benefit of their views about his messages. Happily for him, he was elsewhere when he was arrested, as I say, for his own safety. On the Monday morning, when Mark Bridger was appearing in Aberystwyth Magistrates Court, Matthew Woods was appearing in Chorley Magistrates Court, uh, where he pleaded guilty uh, to an offence under Section 127 of the Communications Act 2003 of sending a grossly offensive message. The Chorley magistrates dealt with the matter there and then. Matthew Woods was sentenced to 12 weeks imprisonment, although this was eventually reduced to eight weeks uh, on appeal. In passing sentence, the chair of the Chorley Magistrates Court said, and I quote, the words and references used to the current case in Wales and that of the missing girl in Portugal are nothing less than shocking, so much so that no right-thinking person in society should have communicated them uh, uh, and such fear and distress. The reason for the sentence is the seriousness of the offence, the public outrage that has been caused, and we felt there was no other sentence this court could have passed, which conveys to you the abhorrence that many in society feel this crime should receive. Back in Wales, the police and prosecutors were building the case against Mark Bridger for trial. A fragment of human bone had been found at Mark Bridges' home, along with images of child abuse. A decision was made by the police and prosecutors to use the latter, the images, as bad character evidence, uh, rather than as a basis for a separate charge. A bad character in criminal proceedings, as you probably know, means evidence of or a disposition towards misconduct, section 99 of the Criminal Justice Act 2003. 
Misconduct means the commission of an offence or other reprehensible conduct. And reprehensible conduct uh, needs to be looked at objectively, taking into account whether the public would regard such conduct as reprehensible. That defini definition was wide enough uh, to allow the police and prosecutors in Mark Bridges' case uh, also to rely on a series of lies he had told about his army record as bad character evidence and introduce it at trial. The trial of Mark Bridges began on the 29th of April this year uh, and lasted just over a month. The CPS prosecution team, which had been meeting regularly in the run-up to the case in a series of case management panels, uh, chaired by Ed Beltrami, the Chief Crown Prosecutor for Wales, uh, successfully applied for the evidence of the witnesses who were children to be presented to the court as DVD evidence in chief and live link evidence in cross-examination, uh, thus saving them the additional ordeal of appearing physically before the court and physically before the defendant. The police and other expert agencies provided them with support throughout the process. Mark Bridges' defence was essentially accident. He claimed that he had knocked April Jones down in his Land Rover by accident. He had picked up her body from under the wheels and put her in the front seat. He then drove off, but he could not remember what he did next. To explain the blood under the carpet in his home at trial, he said he remembered laying April down in his lounge, but could not explain why there was no damage to his car, no blood in the car, or the fragment of human bone in the house. He told the jury that he simply could not remember anything else. The jury convicted Mark Bridger after just over four hours of deliberations. And two hours later, the judge sentenced him to a whole life term of imprisonment, describing him as a pathological liar and a paedophile. After the verdict and sentence, Ed Beltrami, the Chief Crown Prosecutor for Wales, read out the following CPS statement outside court, and I quote, uh, We welcome today's verdict, which brings to a close a difficult and challenging prosecution. Ever since his first interview with police in October last year, Mark Bridger has relentlessly spun a web of lies and half-truths to try and distance himself from the truly horrific nature of the crime he perpetrated. He has refused to take responsibility for what he did to April and has stopped at nothing to try and cover his tracks. Despite his best efforts to evade justice, he's been brought to account by a highly professional investigation by the police, coupled with the diligent and hard work of the prosecution team. Working together, we've been able to comprehensively dismantle Bridges', ver Bridges versions of events and expose him as a violent, cold-hearted murderer 
and a calculated liar. I would like to record our thanks to everyone who supported the prosecution of this case, everyone who has provided a statement to police or given evidence in court has played their part in today's verdict. At the very heart of this case are April's family, who have been through and continue to go through an ordeal of appalling magnitude. They've conducted themselves with humbling dignity throughout. We can only hope that today's verdict will be of some help to them as they continue to try to come to terms with the loss of April, end of quote. At Leeds Crown Court this afternoon, a convicted murderer and rapist, Juvenile Ferrari, was given a second life sentence to the sentence uh, he'd already received for slashing Mark Bridges' face in prison in an attempt to get him to say where April Jones's body is. The matter is obviously still raw. So, what do the cases of Mark Bridger and Matthew Woods tell us about a prosecution service for the 21st century? The title of this lecture. At first, they tell us how much things have changed in the 27 years since the Crown Prosecution Service was established in 1986. What was envisaged then was an organisation with a very narrow remit, a prosecution service which would inherit a case after the police had completed their investigation and after the police had laid the charges that would, pre that would prepare the file for court but without any direct dealings with the victims or witnesses and an organisation that would then brief the case out to self-employed barristers to conduct the case in court. Now, as the Mark Bridger case shows, the CPS is involved at a much earlier stage in all big operations. Often, as in that case, within hours of the arrest of a suspect, or even before, if the arrest is pre-planned. The CPS works with the police in real time, assessing the evidence and advising on issues such as the admissibility of evidence. The charging decision itself in all serious cases is now the responsibility of the CPS, a key change that was made in 2003. And case preparation requires careful assessment of evidence which, not so long ago, would have been inadmissible. Uh, for example, uh, bad character evidence. Case management panels such as that chaired by Ed Beltrami, are now commonplace in big cases. Uh, and the CPS is much more centrally involved in dealings with victims and witnesses. In any case involving a bereavement, the CPS team will meet families at an early stage to explain uh, how we will approach the case uh, and to explain our decisions. And as the case approaches trial, the CPS team along with the trial advocate, will meet the family again to explain the court process to them. In the meantime, it's our job to assess whether special measures are needed to enable victims and witnesses to give their best evidence at court, and, if so, what measures we should apply for. 
for example, screens, video links, intermediaries, anonymity, and even, uh, in extreme cases, voice distortion techniques. As you've heard, in the Mark Bridger case, careful thought had to be given to the question of how uh, April Jones's very young friends would give their evidence. The second thing that the cases of Mark Bridger and Matthew Woods tell us is that in the public eye, the CPS has become a lot more visible. And with visibility has come accountability. We now routinely announce our charging decisions, as we did in the Mark Bridger case. And we routinely make statements on the steps of court when the case is finished, again, as we did in the Mark Bridger case. Uh, in that way, the public has a much better grasp of the detail of a case and a much better understanding of the role of the prosecutor. Uh, we also give reasons far more than we used to and in greater detail. Cases such as that of Matthew Woods in Lancashire have added a third and new dimension, uh, namely a prosecution service willing and able to tackle difficult areas of our criminal law and to settle a prosecutorial approach based on publicly facing guidelines. Uh, this all started in 2009 with our assisted suicide guidelines, which the House of Lords, sitting in its judicial capacity for the last time before decamping to the Supreme Court, required me to draw up following the case of Debbie Purdy. You probably recall the case. Deb Debbie Purdy suffers from multiple sclerosis, for which there is no known cure. Her condition is deteriorating, and she expects that we'll there will come a time when her continuing existence will become unbearable. When that happens, she wants to end her life. But by that stage, she will almost certainly need assistance to do so. Her husband is willing to assist her, but she does not want to expose him to the risk of prosecution for assisted suicide. In 2009, in argument before the House of Lords, she accepted that her husband could not be guaranteed immunity from prosecution. Instead, she argued that in order to enable her to make an informed decision as to whether or not to ask her husband for assistance, she needed to know the factors that the Director of Public Prosecutions, me, would take into account in deciding whether a prosecution was required in the public interest. In response to this, the CPS argued in court that the Code for Crown Prosecutors, a general document, which sets out the public interest factors for and against prosecution for all offences, uh, provided sufficient information about the factors likely to be relevant. As you know, the House of Lords disagreed. Although their lordships accepted that the Code will normally provide sufficient guidance to prosecutors and to the public as to how decisions are likely to be taken and whether or not, in any given case, it will be in the public interest to prosecute, Pointing to my decision in the case of a young man injured on a rugby pitch in Nuneaton, not so far from here, Lord Hope said 
the director's own analysis shows that in a highly unusual and extremely sensitive case of this kind, the code offers almost no guidance at all. Accordingly, the House of Lords required me as DPP to, quote, clarify what my position is as to the factors that I regard as relevant for and against prosecution in this very special and carefully defined class of case. I complied with that judgment by publishing assisted suicide guidelines, first in interim form um, and then in final form. Uh, they've been in force since February uh, 2010. And contrary to views expressed to some at the time, they work very well in practice. The significance of the Debbie per Purdy case is not only that it was the first time that the courts have ever required the CPS to publish offence-specific guidance, setting out the approach to be taken to the exercise of prosecutorial discretion, but also that the underlying principle, namely that individuals are entitled to a reasonable degree of certainty about the application of the criminal law, is of general application and fundamental. Gradually, we've developed other guidelines based on the same principle. The DPP's guidelines on prosecuting journalists provide an example. The conundrum in these cases is how to uphold the criminal law whilst at the same time recognising and protecting the public interest served by the media in a democratic society. To take an obvious example... Uh, the first prosecution under the Bribery Act 2010 was of a clerk at Redbridge Magistrates Court in London. He was caught in a sting operation organised by journalists from The Sun who offered him a large amount of cash in the court car park to make a criminal case disappear. He readily accepted. In doing so, the journalists themselves almost certainly committed the offence of offering a bribe to a public official. But using the guidelines, nobody has ever suggested that the prosecution was required in the public interest. More recently, I published guidelines uh, for prosecutors in cases involving offensive messages sent using social media, of which uh, there are very many. The challenge here is to square our law with Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which protects free speech. These guidelines, issued in draft form in December 2012 and in final form in June this year, make clear that a high threshold will have to be passed before the CPS will prosecute grossly offensive remarks posted on Twitter or Facebook. A communication has to be more than simply offensive to be contrary to the criminal law. And just because the content expressed in the communication is in bad taste, controversial or unpopular, and may cause offence to individuals or a specific community, is not, in itself, sufficient reason to engage the criminal law. Thus, I've indicated to our prosecutors that they should only proceed with a criminal prosecution where they are satisfied that a communication or message sent by social media is more than offensive, shocking or disturbing, 
more than satirical, iconoclastic or rude, and more than the expression of unpopular or unfashionable opinion about serious or trivial matters, banter or humour, even if distasteful to some or painful to those who are subjected to it. Moreover, I've indicated that a prosecution will not be required in the public interest unless a communication goes beyond what could conceivably be tolerable and acceptable in an open and diverse society which upholds and respects freedom of expression. A threshold which the chair of the Chorley Magistrates Court obviously thought was crossed in the case of Matthew Woods. Uh, these are not easy cases, and many people have strong, if varied, views about free speech and the criminal law. In a comment piece in The Guardian on the 9th of October last year, the day after Matthew Woods was sentenced, John Kampfner, former editor of The New Statesman and a respected journalist, described Matthew Woods' messages as, quote, sick, not criminal. In his views, sites such as Sycopedia may encourage offensive behaviour, but this should not be an issue for the law. But whatever, you've, whatever view you take personally, there can be no doubt that publicly facing guidelines on difficult and sensitive issues such as assisted suicide, journalistic freedom and offensive remarks on social media have not only enabled prosecutors to reach consistent decisions, but have also had it added a high level of public scrutiny. The CPS now effectively indicates uh, in advance how it will deal with a difficult issue through guidelines and then explains its decisions afterwards by giving reasons. That is a high level of public scrutiny. Before I step down as DPP at the end of this month, uh, there's one further set of guidelines that I hope to publish in final form, uh, namely guidelines on the proper approach to prosecuting child sexual abuse cases. Uh, the Jimmy Savile saga coupled with a string of so-called street-grooming cases around the country, persuaded me that a fundamental shift in our approach to assessing the credibility of vulnerable witnesses is needed. Uh, the Association of Chief Police Officers and the newly established College of Policing agree, and so, uh, for the first time, we will be able to issue guidelines together. Watch this space. So, a prosecution service for the 21st century is a service very different to the CPS established in 1986. The changes in the intervening 27 years, particularly those in the last 10 years, have broken the blueprint. Now we have a prosecution service which is engaged far, far earlier in the criminal process, which has developed an integrated approach with the police, which deals with victims and witnesses more directly and prepares evidence for trial which years ago would have been inadmissible and which is far more visible and accountable. And we're far better off for it. Thank you.
This is a recording from the University of Leicester. For more information, please visit le.ac.uk.